Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm Diane Halsey, your host with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today, roughly 80% of all American families of all racial backgrounds have their children in an early childhood program. And anecdotally, we know that Black and Native children and children of color often don't feel safe, loved, or even academically supported in these places. So because of this, many parents of color are turning to culturally informed programs for their children. So what's special about these early childhood programs and how can their values and practices be integrated into mainstream childcare programs to boost achievement? My guest today is Dr. Deborah Sullivan. She is an educator and a researcher with more than 25 years of experience in early childhood education. She is the author of several books, including Cultivating the Genius of Black Children. So I just want to say a big welcome to you, Deborah. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I want to get started with a basic question, Deborah. What do you say to people who are concerned that children are too young to talk about race and racism? What do you say to that? I say that that is what adults want to believe. We spend time intentionally teaching children. That's one of the first things they learn is about colors, how to distinguish between different colors, to call it out. Let's look for all the orange things, but then we don't want them to notice the color of other people's skin. Right. When you're talking to a two, three, four-year-old, that's just ludicrous. Like, I don't understand, mom. How come you can't see that that woman over there is brown? Shh, shh, don't say anything. (laughs) I know a lot of parents, they do do that. Don't don't talk about that. Don't point that out. What What's the message we're sending? Well, you're sending a couple of messages to children. The first message is confusion because the two or three-year-old, the four-year-old, they don't know why it is that they're being shushed. It's like I've been pointing out orange things and green things for weeks now. I point out a brown thing and I get in trouble. Right. The second message that we send them is It must be bad to be brown because you don't talk about stuff that's bad. Mm. So now I've learned it's bad. I still don't know why it's bad. Then we try to teach children to be colorblind. So we've spent all of this time making them learn colors. Then we start pointing out the colors that they're not supposed to mention and talk about in particular context, in this case, people. Then we tell them that color doesn't matter. I don't notice anybody's skin color because it's all the same which is untrue because it matters to me that I'm brown. I care about being brown. I actually like being brown. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And the other thing that happens, of course, is that for some people, skin color matters an awful lot in both positive ways and negative ways. So there are children who are told specifically, don't hang around with anyone who's brown. Anyone whose skin color does not look like ours, we don't hang out with them. Don't marry them. Don't bring them home. They can't be your friend. Some people are very explicit about that. Yes. So tell us, how does that show up, for instance, in an early childhood classroom? Do you have any examples that you can share with us? 
I do. And they're from the first R. It's a book about how children learn about race and racism. There were people who went into early childhood classrooms with three and four-year-olds and just observed their interactions and notions around race, looking at uh, were there demonstrations of early signs of color prejudice, racism, basically. So I'm going to give one example of a, an interaction that happened between a teacher and a three-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, I am going to use the N-word, and I'm going to use it because it shows how young children learn about race and racism. So there is a three-year-old girl named Carla, and Carla's white. It's nap time in the classroom, and Carla's cot is next to a four-year-old girl, Nicole, who's black. The children are laying down, and Carla gets up and starts to move her cot away from Nicole. And the teacher asks her, you know, what are you doing? Carla looks at the teacher and looks at Nicole and said, she's a stink and I can't sleep next to her. Mm. And the teacher is like, you put your cot right back over there and lay down, young lady. And Carla looks at her like, "Okay, I will. But we all know it's true. Carla wasn't confused about what Carla thought. She was confused by the teacher's reaction. Wow. So the teacher tells the director and the director's appalled and the director calls the parents and the parents are appalled and everybody's saying, you know, well, she didn't learn that word from us. They were convinced that she couldn't possibly know what that word meant. But Carla used a very specific derogatory word that is applied to a very specific group of people. And she was three. She was three. So uh, that is an excellent example of what can happen in the classroom. My next question is about where do you go from there? Because there may be some educators listening who have had similar experiences um, happening in their classroom. And so when you see something like that, you experience something like that, what, what should you do about it? What should the reaction be? Well, first of all, I think that there has to be some pre-action before there is a reaction. The pre-action is it's going to happen. Yeah. It's as simple as that. So the pre-action is for adults to start really researching and practicing colleague-to-colleague conversations about how do we want to approach that? Because saying to a, a young child like Carla, you know, we don't use unkind words like that. And Carla's mind is thinking, a lot of you do. I mean, I learned the word. <laughs> Which goes back to the confusion that you talked about earlier. That's not enough. Mm-hmm. We tell children, you know, don't use hurtful words and say you're sorry. So the kid says, sorry. There's no real education that's happening there. So the pre-action is how do we want to approach derogatory language that goes on between children in our classrooms. It doesn't have to only be about the N-word. It could be about any derogatory language. And you engage the children in that. Mm-hmm. How do we want to be with each other in this classroom? Mm-hmm. I want to talk specifically about the N-word because we hear that word in our popular music, popular culture, How can parents have a conversation specifically about the use of that word with their young children? Well, first of all, we are talking about two different words. There's one that's spelled with an E-R 
And there's one that's spelled with an A-H. And they mean really two completely different things and are used in two completely different contexts. So I'm going to go with the word that ends with the E-R. So that is a derogatory word invented by white people decades ago to apply to black people. When you are having conversations with young children, even telling them, you may hear this word, the one with the E-R. We don't use that word. And here's why. We respect all people. Telling a child it's a bad word and we don't use bad words. Again, it's confusing because, well, when my dad hits his finger with the hammer, he says, damn, all the time. I don't know why I get in trouble when I say it. And so telling them that's a derogatory word that applies to a group of people, and we respect that group of people. So we do not use that word. That is not kind, and it's not respectful. It's a much longer conversation to have about the word that ends with the A-H, but they are two different words used by two different groups of people, usually in two very different contexts. Yes, thank you for that. That's very helpful. For those parents out there who might currently have children in an early childhood setting, and they may have some knowledge of or maybe some suspicions that there might be some racial tension in that classroom, how can a parent approach their child's teacher about issues like that? Well, like I said before, before there is a reaction, there should be a pre-action. So don't wait for the teacher to establish a good relationship with you. You go establish that relationship with the teacher. Get to know the teacher as a human being. You know, we all have relatives that aren't perfect. We love them anyways. Why? Because we know that person. Mm -hmm. You are the expert on your own child, parents. You know more about that child than your teacher will. You're listening to Early Risers. I'm your host, Diane Halsey, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Deborah Sullivan, author, researcher, and early childhood expert. So I want to switch a little bit to talking about your book, Cultivating the Genius of Black Children. Now, we know that nationally, about 20% of all preschool children are Black children, but about 45% of all boys suspended are Black boys, and the numbers are even worse for Black girls. So can you tell us a little bit about your work and what can educators do to help recognize the genius in Black children? Yes, I loved writing that book because it was a definite opportunity for me to really dig deep into the research around what works in terms of Black children's learning styles and multiple intelligences. And, and so if something showed up decade after decade, researcher after researcher, country after country, because I looked at research around Black children and learning all around planet Earth. And so anything that showed up regularly got into the book. I then looked at best practice around early childhood education. I looked at best practice in gifted and highly capable, in special education, in Montessori, in Reggio Emilia, high scope and project-based learning and inquiry-based learning. Wow. And a lot of those best practices matched the learning preferences and learning styles of Black children. And I say in the book, 
multiple times, not every single Black child that you will ever meet, and not only Black children, because these styles and preferences can show up in any population. The challenge that Black children have is that they are not often in learning environments where those things take place. The rest of the book then is about what would a classroom look like starting with two-year-olds and ending with third grade if we actually implemented all of that research? Yes. You have been involved in developing culturally specific early childhood learning programs. What can you tell us about the essential components of a learning environment that especially supports BIPOC children? Well, I think what's very important in any learning environment is an adult who exudes and shows and practices care and concern and love to all of the children in the classroom. Whatever else is in the environment supplements everything that that teacher brings to that early childhood learning environment. Mm -hmm. In the environment itself, having things that are interesting and exciting, things that spark curiosity, things that inspire children to want to learn more, do more, explore and discover. I think that's going to be important in an environment as well. That is excellent. Excellent. So can you give me an example of an interaction between a teacher and a child that would be different from a mainstream learning center? Sure. When you think about the interactions that take place between Black children and Black adults, for example, uh, in Black culture, there is a lot of active engagement between each other. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of opportunities for children to spend lots of time in the company of other adults. It's about establishing a community of love and protection. And those relationships are key. So what will happen for Black children when they enter an early learning environment, they will start to interact with the adults there the way they know how to interact with adults in their home and in their community. Asking questions, you know, like, are you married? Do you have a dog? Where do you buy your groceries? Do you sleep here? Mm -hmm. Anything just to get to know the teacher more. And sometimes teachers in their professional role may be thinking about bubbles and boundaries. The child is not thinking about bubbles and boundaries because they're trying to establish a relationship. They want to come up and put their arms around your neck and look over your shoulder. They want to do all those things while the teacher may be trying to establish distance and space. So what happens then for that child is they come to the conclusion that the teacher does not want to get to know them, that the teacher doesn't necessarily care about them as much. And remember, we are talking about young children. Children know this is what I do when I'm showing my grownups that I care about them. And this is what my grownups do when my grownups are showing me that they care about me. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about what are bubbles and boundaries and um, how a teacher might use them? Yes. So in many uh, learning environments, there are a do not touch the child policy, Mm -hmm. hugs, sitting on laps, all those kinds of things would be like boundaries. You can't comfort a child in that way. You can use your words, 
oh, I'm so sorry that you hurt yourself. But you can't be like, come here, sweetheart, put the child on your lap and rock them a little bit until they feel comforted. But that's what children are looking for. If we're talking about attachment, if we're talking about bonding. So some of those boundaries are established and then the child just doesn't feel comforted. The other thing is that because Black people have close relationships with each other, um, we do tend to touch more. We do tend to, to stand closer together. Yes. When the teacher is doing the professional work of establishing bubbles and boundaries in the classroom, and you have children from different cultures who don't understand how big another culture's bubble is, they're doing what they're used to. Exactly. So what what I hear you saying is that, you know, there are these bubbles and boundaries that teachers have to adhere to. And 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 there's some very real reasons why we have them. But because culturally children learn best, we know, when they have a good relationship with their educator or caregiver. And so they are trying to develop that relationship in the only way they know how. And because of these boundaries and bubbles, they're not able to really do that the way that they normally know how to. And so that inherently is hindering that learning from the beginning. That's kind of what I hear you saying. Well, I think for all people, it's difficult to learn from someone when you don't think that they care about you. So it is true that that doesn't work well for children. It does not work well for many adults as well. Mm. I don't know any adult who learns really, really well in an environment where their supervisor is constantly telling them everything that they did wrong, is constantly trying to back up and away from them. We've grown older, so we know how to manage that. Babies don't. Right, right. So if this rule can't change, and it probably won't, at least anytime soon, how can a teacher make sense of that for a child? Well, first of all, you have a conversation with the child. You can sit with three-year-olds and you can say, you know, they have a rule at our school that I can't hug you. So when you fall and hurt your knee, we'll have to have a code that means I'm hugging you, even if I can't hug you. Or we have a rule that you can't sit on my lap, but you can stand next to me and you can hold my leg. Mm. We have conversations then with children about this is, this is what the rule is. That doesn't mean I don't care about you. What can we do? How will you know I care about you if you can't sit on my lap? Oh, because you hand me that green teddy bear. That's our sign. (laughs) That's our sign. I like that. I like that. When you look at the research that I did around cultivating the genius of Black children and what works best for them, almost everything that's on the list you get in trouble for in school. What are some of the things on the list? Having an active and engaging environment. So. It's exciting. We're learning. Learning should be exciting. I'm excited. (laughs) Yes. You know, and I know I have to wait before I can go over to the block area, but there it is. I can see it. It's exciting. But the black child is probably going to try to get over there. Their curiosity cannot be contained all the time. And then they're in trouble. Then they get in trouble if they are in more traditional learning environments where they're expected to focus primarily on the teacher, to interact with primarily the teacher, to be still more, uh, to be quiet more, to not uh, actively 
touch and engage things in the classroom, you start to get in trouble. And so then you have, well, we have to suspend these children or expel these children because, you know, he was throwing a tantrum. What you do is you find out what is upsetting the child and then see what you can do to accommodate that or at least help the child to understand. I know you really, 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 really want to go outside and continue playing tag. But I'll tell you what, I promise you we can play tag again tomorrow. You know, Deborah, I'm I'm sitting here listening to you talk about all of these things that Black children really respond to. And like you said, many of these could apply to other children as well. And so I'm wondering, how can early childhood educators integrate these culturally supportive strategies into their classrooms? Well, first, I would say you can do it one step at a time. Sometimes people will read something that is interesting that they want to incorporate into their own teaching and learning environments. But they look at, oh my goodness, this book is 132 pages. I can't do all of this. (laughs) So one bite at a time. And you probably could. One of the chapters in the book is called One Teacher's Journey. And I basically tell the story of a young 24-year-old teacher who grew up in a predominantly white uh, neighborhood, has just graduated from her early childhood program. And and this young 24-year-old teacher got a job in Seattle working in a preschool classroom, more diversity than she'd ever seen in her lifetime. And so she just shows how she just kind of implemented, took in one thing at a time. Mm. Starting off, just having a conversation about how do we want to be in relationship with each other? How do we want to interact with each other and care for each other in our environment? Now you've implemented something from the book, the establishing of relationships, the creating this culture of care that if I knock over the jar of water, I'm not in trouble. My teacher's going to help me figure out how to help clean it up so that I will learn how to be careful and how to be responsible, but I'm not in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so you just do one thing at a time and incorporate it. And the next week or the next month, pick one and incorporate that and watch your learning environment begin to change. You know, Deborah, this is so fascinating. I want to thank you for this conversation. Well, you are very welcome. Uh, I love talking about how we can change the teaching and learning environments for children so that they are just happy. Yes. And they are all geniuses. They are all geniuses. I have been talking with Dr. Deborah Sullivan, who is an author, an educator, and a researcher, and also a leader in the field of educating Black children. This is Early Risers from Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you to our executive producer, Andrea Bork, our producer, Melissa Townsend, technical director, Alex Simpson, and the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. And thank you to Kaviesh Kabaraj for our theme song, I Still Remember. To learn more about this conversation and to hear more episodes, go to npr.org backslash early dash risers. And to get more resources about talking with very young children about race and racism, go to littlemomentscount.org. 